morning. We are now live. It is 9 a.m. here in downtown Columbia, and we're glad that you're with us on 89.5 FM. Welcome to Community Pulse, your locally produced program on the COVID-19 pandemic here in mid-Missouri. On today's show, we will actually be having a pre-recorded interview with Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and our resident physician here at KOPN. And we will be discussing a topic that we broached a little bit yesterday, and that is transmission in children. We want to thank everyone who participated in providing us with feedback and questions for yesterday's interview with Columbia Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Peter Stiepelman. And we'd also like to let you know that Dr. Stiepelman responded to some of these concerns uh, that were raised by listeners after the interview. Those comments can be found on our Facebook page. Before getting to the interview this morning, we're going to do some numbers. Global COVID-19 stats. Uh, We now have total confirmed cases of 9,565,546 and 485,690 casualties. That is worldwide. In the United States, as many of you have surely heard by now, there are, of course, conflicting statistics, but there is no controversy about the fact that yesterday was a record day nationwide with some 37,000 new confirmed cases. Moving on to the state of Missouri, we're so very pleased that uh, Matthew Holloway provides us with statistics. We had 320 new cases yesterday from 37 jurisdictions and seven deaths. A painful milestone has been passed. That is 1,000 deaths in the state of Missouri. In Boone County, the latest figures are we have, uh, I believe, 200 and... No, well, 302 total positive cases since the pandemic uh, began that are uh, 84 active cases. uh, 216 have been released from isolation, and we have two deaths total from the COVID-19 pandemic since this began in early March. We'll go ahead and get that interview with Dr. Alleman rolling for you. We're very much glad that you're with us here on Community Pulse. And Dr. Alleman and I discussed yesterday afternoon a case of transmission in children. So good afternoon, Dr. Holliman. Thank you so very kindly for once again joining us and uh, doing the legwork. Hey, thank you, Peter, for staying uh, late and being willing to pre-record the show so that I can go berry picking, (laughs) which is an essential part of my physical and mental health in the summertime. Mental health is very something to take quite seriously in the, in the post-COVID war, uh, world, I would imagine. It, it is always an essential part of having a healthy immune system, so I hope everyone is doing the best they can in these difficult times. So, But, you know, Peter, we wanted to talk today about uh, COVID disease in children. Uh, yesterday, there was a uh, Jenny Chadwick had uh, Dr. Stiepelman on to talk about the, the big uh, decisions that the Columbia Public Schools is having to make about what to do about school in the fall. And that is, of course, complicated by the fact that this is a rapidly changing situation, and it seems like every week we have a different idea about what is actually happening regards to COVID. And also the fact that, you know, just about the time we start opening schools will be the time that we will have our seasonal influenza which means that it will be really hard to tell whether um, coughs and sniffles and uh, respiratory symptoms and fever is from COVID-19 or from something else. Um, other coronaviruses which cause colds also are seasonal. So we just would really expect to be very confused in the fall. And I really admire the community members and the school board members and the uh, le- thought leaders of 
who are really tackling this question and trying to get um, the best plans we can out. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the science behind some of the decisions that are being made. And there's this um, article that uh, we'll be linking on the website about the age-dependent effects and the transmission and control of COVID-19 epidemics. And it's really asking the question of how much will school closures change how much spread there is in the community. Indeed. The yeah. two articles are uh, quite fascinating. We'll, we will be posting a link to them on our website and our Facebook page. The first one, Age-Dependent Effects of the Transmission uh, and Control of COVID-19 Epidemics, has some very startling statistics in the abstract. This is a study that uh, took into account 32 data sets in six countries, China, Italy, Japan, Singapore, Canada, and, and South Korea. Yeah. And uh, findings were that susceptibility to infection in individuals, in individuals under 20 years of age is approximately half that of adults aged over 20 years. Right. Right. So, um, and they also, in this article, they, they, they really looked at what we're learning from uh, published data and from contact tracing in uh, how is this illness spread and who is it that's susceptible to it. And there are still many questions that are unanswered. So they looked at all that data, and then they applied models to it to try to see what would happen if we changed school attendance. And this whole science of modeling is um, beyond my expertise. So it appears that these people did it in a thoughtful fashion, but I am not qualified to be critical of their methodology. So I'm just going to presume that the peer reviewers did their job, which is that's a huge assumption these days, but I'm going to make it anyway, and I'm just going to talk about what it is that they seem to find. So one of the things they seem to find is that children seem to be less likely to get this. I think we've all known that. We've been talking about it, and we're not sure exactly why children are less likely to get um, COVID-19. And there's some interesting stat data about um, the uh, how... Um, how common it is for the receptor that the virus uses to gain access into the cells. Because remember, when a, when a virus infects us, it gets into our nose, typically a respiratory virus gets into our nose, and then it goes inside the cells, takes control of, our, of the cellular, the mammalian cells' ability to replicate DNA and RNA, um, hijacks that and replicates itself, and then um, uh, the cell bursts open, and then there's more of this virus that, that now need to go and get into more cells and repeat the process. So if the virus can't get in the cell, it can't do the next thing, and it just dies. So this, this virus is using something called the ACE2 receptor uh, to get into the cell. And um, the... Uh, it appears that there is a variability in humans um, about how those those ACE2 receptors are expressed, and children express less of them than adults. Interestingly, the older we get, the more we re express. It appears that men express more than women, and smokers express more than non-smokers. So, so children don't have the little foothold that the virus needs to get in. So... Um, so we, what we know is that there's the COVID-19 shows an increased number of cases and a greater risk of severe disease with increasing age. And that was true for the SARS-1 epidemic as well. But it is not necessarily true about influenza. 
and we're not sure whether it's because they're decreased susceptibility to infection, a lower probability of showing disease on infection, or a combination of both. But we think that it's probably a combination of both. Um, so, uh, and so it's hard. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get into the details of that. Children, however, have, I, I did not know that this was documented, but I think it's kind of common sense, but I think people have actually done the science to show that children tend to make more social contacts than adults. That is, if you put kids in a building, they will interact closely in a way that they could spread disease with more people than the adults will. And so that, that's a documented thing. And so we think that if all, things were, all other variables were equal, that children would contribute more to the transmission than adults. And I think that was, it was that knowledge that led us to close the schools in the spring in the first place. Indeed. And this study says that uh, that is not necessarily the case. It is, it is true that children make more social contacts than adults. However, um, what we don't know is how transmissible this virus is between children. So if children are less likely to get it, um, they're less likely to, to have a clinical case, that is to show us that they have it. And since most of our testing is being done um, in response to people having symptoms, um, we don't know whether we're not seeing these cases in children because they just are getting it, spreading it, not telling us that they had it and um, because they're not sick and we're not testing and we're not identifying in the children. So, uh, and, and very few people want to do a study where we're going to nasal swab all the children. Um, mostly the children don't want that study done. <laughs> um, so, but what we think is that people who don't get symptoms or don't get severe symptoms or don't, you know, have very mild symptoms seem to be less likely to spread it even if they get it. So when we look at all the data, when those, these people crunch the data through their various models with all of these multicolored graphs that make my um, uh, eyes spin, what we're seeing, what they're seeing is that it looks like the impact of school closures on community spread is measurable, but it's small. So they're saying that um, it looks like the peak is smaller, about a 10 to 20 percent decrease in the peak incidence and about a one to six delay in the peak timing. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so you know, the question is which things, that, which things that we stop doing in the spring should we start doing again? And I think most parents and many people, other people who, and the children uh, and other people who benefit from having a well-educated community would say that educating our children should be high on the list of the things we resume doing if we could possibly do it without endangering the children, the staff at the school, and the community. And I would propose that that is a higher um, social value than bars, movie theaters, um, uh, restaurants, uh, uh, and I think that probably comes right up there, like probably above large weddings, um, excessively large funerals. And again, I'm not trying to make a judgment on people who do those things. I'm just saying that probably educating our children is above that. And that um, so, so it appears that we may be able to do reopen schools and not change our community uh, numbers in, in a remarkable way. You know, the super spreading events 
you know, where a person or maybe two people that we know of were in a place and then, you know, more than 10 people got the illness, those have typically been um, workplaces, um, restaurants, uh, churches, um, and uh, uh, gyms. So it's places where people, adults, are together for a sustained amount of time in the same indoor place, and they're breathing heavily. Because, you know, we talk at restaurants and we shout it. And so we don't really know. I'm guessing that sports um, events inside would be a bad idea, too. Okay. So um, Yes, if anyone is interested, um, I myself uh, always reference an article that I was reading whilst in lockdown. It was an article in the April 30th uh, edition of The Economist. And uh, it makes quite the compelling case for easing lockdowns, uh, governments opening schools first. Right. Um, it is, if anyone's interested, we'll post a link to that on our yeah, website be as great. well. Because um, there is an extreme cost uh, to keeping the world's uh, schools shut down. Three in four children live in countries uh, where all classrooms are closed. And the disruption is unprecedented. I mean, the effect right. on young minds could be absolutely devastating. It, you know, um, and... It, Right. There are so many um, downstream effects to closing a school. So sadly, we live in a place where a significant number of children uh, do, you know, have their nutrition and their calorie intake severely restricted if they don't go to school. Now, you know, we could talk about a lot of ways to fix that. Um, and there are sadly many children who live in homes that are not safe for one reason or another. And so whenever we basically double the length of summer vacation, um, I, I'm not calling what we did in the spring vacation, but when we dis, when we close the schools for twice as long as we typically do, there are you know it's the children at the margins who are suffering the most. Plus, um, this has placed an incredible burden on parents, um, especially on mothers. The statistics on what is happening to the careers of women, especially women in professions and science, is pretty uh, stark. There's a of course a gender discrepancy. I'm sure there's racial issues too that I'm not aware of. Um, anyway, we we don't know what we need to know yet about what's going on in schools as far as transmitting COVID, and in part because what we did around the world was we closed schools. There were some exceptions, and, it, and in those countries it doesn't seem like um, keeping the schools open increased cases, but we'll have to see what we do in the fall. And we would love to see some other study types um, to build the evidence base for the role of children, including serologic surveys and close follow-up of those infected households. Um, so the other thing is that they also commented on how this data might look different in uh, low to moderate income countries because uh, their demographics tend to be different as well. And then moving to the other um, study, the uh, uptodate.com study, just asking, like, COVID-19, coronavirus disease 2019 considerations in children. And again, um, uh, children, can children get COVID? Yes, they can. Um, It tends to be way less than in adults, which we already talked about. Um, Children under one year seem to have a slightly increased risk than other children, than than children one to four. Anyway, there's just this little bump. But they caution that some of that data is from uh, places where not all of the infections were confirmed. 
And so since respiratory illnesses are so common and a common cause of children needing to be hospitalized in that first year of life, it's possible that that data is a little muddy. So we're just going to have to watch and see what happens. Um, Let's see. And, of course, the discrepancies we're seeing in adults seems to, as far as race and ethnicity, um, persist in children. Um, So then the question is, how do the children get it? Um, most cases in children result from household exposure, usually with an adult as the index patient. So most children are getting sick from adults, which is a thing for people to consider in schools because schools are not filled only with children. There are adults there too, and we need to consider about their risk, like the risk to them and plus their risk of transmitting to other people. Um, so, and do children transmit COVID-19 to others? And where the role is not clear. And, but it, limited evidence suggests that the transmission by children is uncommon, perhaps because of viral interference or milder symptoms. So, um, and then do children get as sick? No, they don't. There are some, um, uh, some interesting specifics in children. So there's this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, which is like Kawasaki or toxic shock syndrome, and it is still very uncommon. And so we're not even, we didn't even notice that it was happening until there were so many cases in New York City. Um, but the things to look for is um, persistent fever, low blood pressure, uh, intestinal symptoms, rash. Um, and let's see, how often do children with COVID-19 require hospitalization? Not very many. And, um, yeah, so that, uh, yeah, and then the article goes through, like, information from, for physicians about how to make a diagnosis Indeed. in children. Uh, we should emphasize that the first study uh, took a look at 32 data sets in six countries. We mentioned that earlier, but it's a point of emphasis. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, the uh, statistics, it, it reports that 79% of 10 to 19-year-olds were actually asymptomatic. The second study, um, in looking at a series, a data set of uh, 2,135 children, all from China, albeit, uh, found that 55% of all cases were mild or asymptomatic. Um, Speaks to the young immune system. I'm just going to say that when doctors call something mild, it may be different than what um, you would consider if you actually had it. Right. So in general, what we mean by mild is does not require hospitalization. True. And I'll bet most of us have had memorable illnesses that we handled right at home that we wouldn't necessarily call mild. So you have to, whenever somebody says mild, I'm in a medical journal, I'm, I'm like trying to get through to what they mean by that. So there's, you know, people who, uh, there's this posse symptomatic, P-A-U-C-I symptomatic, and that means, posse means not very many. So that means a person that um, did not even realize they were sick. But if you go back and talk to them, oh, now we know that you have COVID, when did your symptoms start? And then they'll go back, oh, well, I guess Monday. You're right. I didn't feel great. I thought maybe I hadn't slept well. Mm -hmm. So it's that little thing that I think most of us think of when we think mild symptoms. We're thinking not enough to interfere with us going to work, not enough for us to take our children seriously and tell them they can stay home from school. And I, so I don't know what it means when somebody says, that 50% of people had mild symptoms. Thank you very much for that important qualifying statement. Um, <laughs> indeed. And I, another, I'll add another qualifying statement to that and say that there's always going to be data lag when we're discussing these studies. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing to remember is that it's so frustrating, but this 
as far as we know, this virus entered humans sometime in the uh, fall of last year, sometime between probably October and December. And so we do not have data about what what we would need to know about, like, well, how long do the antibodies last? Uh, I don't know. Yes. Like, how, okay, so people who have, you know, um, serious lung um, disability after this infection, how long is that going to last? I'm, I don't know. You know, like, how long does the recovery last? Does everybody eventually recover? We don't know yet. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're discussing studies today uh, in which the data set concluded in, <clears throat> I think, at the latest in early April. And in point of fact, the even the Economist article that I uh, referenced is two months old. Right. So we're all learning uh, as we go along. And that's an important qualifying statement to, uh, well, to, <clears throat> to put in front of any analysis of this. Right. So I think that one of the things to remember is that um, as we open schools in the fall, and it sounds like that's what we're going to do in Columbia, and as parents make decisions about whether their children will participate in school online or they will go to in-person school, we all have to stay pretty flexible because we're going to be learning as we go about this because it's the only option we have. Of course. Yeah. And. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's conflicting information out there as well. I think it was maybe even that uh, in that same issue of The Economist that said that uh, smokers were less vulnerable because of the ACE2 receptor. We now know that to be false. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's yeah. Well, there's also going to be people who come at a question from different uh, perspectives. Yes. You know, so, for example, we've spent some time last week talking about, uh, and this week, talking about mask wearing. And, you know, there's this, the people who do the test where they push particles of different sizes through different pieces of material and say a uh, cloth face mask that you can make at home is not going to keep viruses from going through. We just showed you. But then the question is, what about in actual use? Do, is it, you know, the viruses ride on particles, not on, you know, on droplets and aerosols, not independent of each of them. You know, they aren't, in, they aren't just free-floating. I'm sure some of them are, but those aren't the ones we think are infectious. Anyway, so it's like looking at these different things from different perspectives. So we're going to be getting data from, um, you know, public health people talking about incidents. We're going to get data eventually once we have enough numbers so we can anonymize it effectively about what are we learning from the stories of the people from the people who are um, doing the contact tracing like what are the stories how are people getting this do they you know do we think it's from them going to a wedding or was it from them going to a protest indeed yeah so we're going to figure that out but it appears that we may be we are likely to be able to open our schools safely and that um, primarily we need to be of course our major concern is with the safety of our students but we're probably going to need to be really focusing on uh, modifying the behavior of the adults because they are the ones who are most likely to get infected and to be transmitters based on our best data so far that is an incredibly salient point. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think a lot of the fear in reopening schools revolves around, oh, you know, the children will do as the children will do. 
right. and we can't have much control over them. That sort of formed a little bit of the cornerstone of this morning's conversation with Dr. Stiebelman. Uh, it's important to know that we can more successfully regulate and control the behavior of the adults within that setting. <laughs> well, now so, that's an interesting theory, Peter, that we <laughs> might could challenge. But let's hope that it is true among people who uh, work and teach in schools. I've... I, I'm a hopeful person in yeah. that regard. Right. I, I, indeed, I am. Well, I thank you so much for all of the hard work that you do here at KOPN, uh, Dr. Alleman. She is our uh, super uber volunteer, uh, not only our resident physician, but every week hosts uh, Your Health Matters and has been joining us here on Community Pulse for what I believe now is probably pushing about uh, 70 episodes since the pandemic began. It's probably true. That I'm, I'm, it's you know, back when I actually was a resident physician, that's the name of a physician in training, um, I made it a point to never count how many hours of sleep I did or did not get. And so I haven't been counting the number of episodes either because I want to just stay fresh and excited about doing it another day. So. Absolutely. I mean, you can count, but I have I have not been counting. So. Well, I, I think uh, a resident physician knows that one should not be counting the number of hours that she's missing out on sleep. All right, Peter, good. thank you so much again. And uh, to all the listeners, I hope that you can stay well. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alleman. We'll look forward to speaking with you again next week. Thank you once again for joining us on Community Pulse, your locally produced program here on the COVID-19 pandemic in mid-Missouri. On your community radio station, 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, servicing most of central Missouri and on the web anytime you like at kopn.org, kopn.org. As a reminder, you can catch Community Pulse live Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m., we post the episodes later to kopn.org and also to our Facebook page. And as always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you might have related to the coronavirus or programming in general here on KOPN. Leave us a message at 573-874-1139 or email us at gm at kopn.org. We just wrapped up a pre-recorded conversation with Dr. Alleman. I recorded it yesterday. We spoke about a couple of intriguing studies concerning uh, transmission rates with children and what potential public policy ramifications that will have nationwide. Before signing off for the weekend, we do, of course, wish you a pleasant weekend and hope that you stay safe, Columbia. Know that uh, the statistics that we use at the beginning of the program are compiled by a citizen of Joplin, Missouri. His name is Matthew Holloway, and he does an excellent job with some real civic rigor putting together those statistics. Current seven-day average in the state of Missouri is 352. You can learn more about that on his Facebook page. Once again, the name is Matthew Holloway. We'll catch you again on Monday. Once again, we wish you a pleasant weekend, Columbia. Thank you so much for tuning in to Community Pulse, and do stay safe.